0: Again, I want to welcome you. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. Uh, I'm going to invite Adam Hancock, one of our deacons, to read the passage for us. If you do have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 38. And we're continuing our series on the story of the church. As we picked up last week, uh, the third missionary journey that Paul begins to go on. And he was in the city of Ephesus. And today, he says farewell after three long years in the church. And so this is the one and only time in the entire, I actually did not know this, or maybe I just forgot, but this is the only long speech or sermon given to Christians in all the book of Acts. Whether it's Paul or Peter or others, this is the only one addressed to Christians, specifically elders But as we look at this passage, I want us to think about what does Paul have to say to the church? There's many sermons that talk about the job descriptions of elders and leadership. Um, But I want us to think about what does it mean to be the church as Paul gives his farewell address for the last time. He knows this is going to be the last time he sees the church in Ephesus. And what can we learn as he says farewell to them? So let's give attention to God's word in Acts chapter 20, verses 17. To thirty-eight. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Adam. Let's pray to the Lord as we come to His Word. Lord, we give You thanks for Your Word to us, and we ask that You would speak to us. Give us wisdom. Give us clarity. Give us hearts that are open and hungry to not only learn, but that we would be transformed by the good news of Jesus. Won't You do that work? We ask now. In Jesus name. Amen. In the film Schindler's List, it's based upon this German businessman named Oscar Schindler. And he went on to save the lives of more than a thousand mostly Polish Jewish Jewish refugees during the Holocaust. And he saved thousands of them by employing them in his factories. Now, when it was time to bid farewell to his workers and prepare to head west to surrender to the Americans, they gathered one last time. And you, many of you who have seen this film remember this very poignant, emotional scene between Oscar Schindler and the many thousands that he had saved. And as they got together, these Polish Jewish refugees not only wanted to say, send him farewell, but they also gave him this letter, letting them know, the Americans know that Oscar Schindler was one who had saved thousands of lives. Along, not only with the letter, but with this signet ring, and on that signet ring, it was this Talmudic qu- quotation that said, "Whoever saves one life, saves the world entire." Now Schindler is touched and is also deeply ashamed. Because he feels like he could have done so much more. He could have saved so many more lives. And in this beautiful scene, he looks at his car. And he says, I could have saved 10 more people if I would sold this car. He looks at his pin. And he says, this is made of gold. I could have saved two. I could have saved one. I could have saved at least one more life. And I share this farewell or this scene is because we begin to realize what's most important. When we're about to say farewell to people around us. When time is running out, we begin to realize what's most important. Now, we can't completely avoid these kind of regrets, but Paul here, as he says farewell, he has fewer fewer regrets than most when he meets with the Ephesian elders for one final time. Paul has been with them for over three years. Years And before boarding this ship, he takes one last opportunity to share with urgency and wisdom the right way to lead and live in the church. What does it mean for leadership? What does it mean for members of a church to see the church flourish? And Paul gives one last exhortation, one last encouragement to the Ephesian church. And I think there's a lot of things for us to be able to learn from as we think about Restoration Community Church. Now I'm going, going bold here. Five things that we can learn. Five things. There's a lot. But I couldn't, I couldn't get down to three. So we're going five. And the first is proclamation. You see this in verses 20 through 27. Let me just read some of these phrases that Paul uses. Declaring to you, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks. And what was he testifying in verse 21? Repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 27, declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What's Paul talking about? What is he proclaiming? What is so important for the church? It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's the whole of scripture that tells us the truth of God, of who he is, what he's done, who we are, where we're going, why there's evil and injustice in this world, and what God is actually doing about it. Paul has been testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. He's been proclaiming the kingdom. He's been giving the whole counsel of God from from the beginning of the books to the end. For us, Genesis through Revelation. And that's why I think for us, this is why Sunday morning, Bible studies, Second Saturdays, are so important. That's why the Bible reading plan has been encouraged for us so that we might know the whole counsel of God. In particular, as Jenny Lynn just shared about our second Saturday in November, we're going to discuss a challenging topic of sex and sexuality to explore what the Bible says about gender, our bodies, and sex, and to be able to especially think about how we teach our children and our teenagers And while this is difficult, this is so important, right? It's important for children, for students, and for adults, because we have to know the truth of what it means that our sexuality reflects the image of God, both in its beauty, but also in its brokenness. We have to be able to know and tell our own stories of our own sexuality, before we begin to make sense of the stories of our culture when it comes to sex and sexuality. But this is what Paul roots the community and the gospel or the church in. The proclamation of the gospel, the truths of who God is and who we are and what he is doing. Now remember, truth often does offend, doesn't it? We saw that last week. Do you remember if you were here last week? The the disciples are here in Ephesus and Demetrius, who's this silversmith, gets word of the gospel that's being proclaimed and it's a threat to their idols. And what do they do? The city rages. The city is wanting to destroy and kill anyone who belongs to the Christians. It gets them angry. It riles them up. That's what truth does sometimes. But I think the problem for us as Christians is that often too all too often we get angry. We get raged, enraged. We become wrathful. And what happens? We look nothing like we look exactly like the culture around us. There is no difference between other and Christians, but rather what we see is as we learn and grow in the truth of Scripture and of teaching, what we're called to is to build bridges, to listen, we're to love, we're to exhibit humility and wisdom and wait for opportunities to show the beauty of Jesus and of his truths. This is what Paul anchors the church in, the proclamation of truth, of the gospel. Secondly, protection. If you look at verses 28 through 32, we see how protection is important and vital to the church. Do you remember during the Maui fires, and there was a story that uh, was shared through social media and on the news of this family of six. And as they tried to escape with their car, they realized there was no way that they were going to escape. And so like many others, what did they do? They jumped into the ocean. And this family of six with young kids tried to wade in the deeper parts of the Pacific. And after some time, knowing that they were going to be there for way too long, they ended up coming closer to the shore, putting themselves against these stone walls next to the fires and the embers that were coming down and cars exploding. And this family took out of their uh, backpack their son's Pokemon blanket, and with this Pokemon blanket, they got it wet and covered their entire family of six overnight until, they came, uh, until people came to rescue them. Protection. From what? From death. From what we see here in Paul saying, fierce wolves in verse 29. He says, pay careful attention. Care for the church of God. Because people are speaking twisted things. Be alert, verse 31. Build you up, verse 32. And we've been learning that in our Bible studies. Right in the book of Galatians, there are wolves who are trying to teach false doctrine. But protection isn't just our doctrine and theology. Yes, that is absolutely important to know and protect the truths of the gospel. But also what we see especially in our given culture, is protection, physical safety, emotional well-being. When there are so many cases of abuse going on amongst leadership, what does it look like for the church to value protection and safety, to care for one another? Paul's chief concern was not for the reputation, for his own reputation, but for the church. The flock, the church, was to be tended carefully and tirelessly. And he gives this kind of instruction to protect the church from the outside, but also from the inside. I just took a trip to the Northeast. Started in Boston, went down to New York, and then down to Philly. Meeting a lot of pastors and actually partnered with Covenant Seminary to recruit uh, pastors up in the Northeast. And as we met with all these pastors, I came back a little discouraged. Because the stories that I kept hearing from the Northeast was of pastors who had abused, and used their power to abuse their congregations. Countless and countless of stories who are not being held accountable and just disappearing and finding them in other churches and in other denominations. And it broke my heart. And the Northeast... And we are not immune from what the Northeast is experiencing. We have seen that happen in our own city. And how important it is for us to be able to protect, to care for, and to be able to love by protecting our people. So one pastor said how in seminary, and I experienced this 20 years ago, What we would learn in seminary in these case studies is how y'all are crazy, right? It's like case studies upon case studies about members who cause trouble. And his question to us at Covenant Seminary was, are they flipping the script? Are we hearing case studies about pastors and their failures? The ways that they have prayed upon the members about being fierce wolves who are devouring their sheep. Well, Paul knows this and he says we are to protect one another and care for each other. Proclamation, protection, but also third, we see generosity. Verse 33-35, Paul exhorts the church to help the weak. We must help the weak. And he quotes something that Jesus had said. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A church is called to be generous. What is generosity? Generosity is the natural, consistent, and occasionally spontaneous giving of our material possessions to God's service and to our communities because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Romans reminds us of that. God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So how can we not spare our own or hold on to the things, but to actually give generously and sacrificially, to have a posture toward God and others in response to the love that He has shown us. To be cheerful, to be sacrificial, to be generous in all that God has blessed us with. I remember as a kid, growing up since I could, I could remember, my mom would always give me and my two younger sisters a clean, brand new, spanking dollar bill. Saturday night she would give it to us and say, "You better not lose this." I'm like, "Give it to me Sunday morning, <laughs> right?" But she always gave us every single, every single weekend a crisp dollar bill, and we would. When the offering plate came by, we would put it into offering plate. And I thought that was ridiculous. Like, why? Why would you do that? You put the $3 in. Like, it's not my money. Like, what's the point of you giving this where I'm probably going to lose it and I'm tempted to actually hold on to it and spend it at school, right? It wasn't until I had my own kids, it clicked. It was discipleship. It was training me up so that out of habit, out of a rhythm that I would learn to give God my best. And that has always stuck out to me. It's a discipleship to give generously. And I'm so encouraged with our own church and the way that we give generously, not only to the church financially, but to one another, to care for one another through meals, to gift one another things when you see the needs of others. This is the kind of generosity we need, and we saw that even with the pledge campaign. People who gave generously, the reports that came in. And that is a beautiful thing that we need to continue to practice so that the outside world looking in sees the kinds of people we are because of what Christ has done. This theme has been All of Acts from chapter 1 till now. Generosity continues to be a part of the church in the early church. Generosity. Now I know some of us might not give and have never given to the church. But what does it look like to be able to remember that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all? And how much more we are called to give. You might think even your little giving doesn't mean much or doesn't amount to much, but it does make a difference to continue to see the ministry of the church flourish and grow internally as a community, but also as we continue to pour out our love and God's love to those around us in our neighborhood, our coworkers, and our families. What would it look like for each and every single one of us to give sacrificially, joyfully, joyfully, and with generous hearts. Fourth, we see here affection. You can't miss it. You probably heard all the tears that are being poured out from one another of of the church in Ephesus and the elders, but also of Paul. In verses 36 through 38, we see they were weeping. They embraced and kissed. They were sorrowful. These elders accompanied, partnered with Paul to the boat, to the ship. And they prayed together with tears. There is affection in this church of Ephesus. Yes, you need to proclaim the gospel and hold the truth and protect one another. But at the core of the church is a community marked by deep mutual love and care for one another. If you go one more verse into chapter 21, 21, verse 1, Luke says this, when they parted from them. You know that word parted? I think it's a weak translation. The actual translation is wrenched away from one another. Paul was dragged away. Paul was torn away from the church of Ephesus as he left to go to Jerusalem. This is the kind of a Affection and deep love they had for one another. Listen, you cannot have community and friendship in the church without tears, without vulnerability, without being able to share your heart. You can't have community and tears if everyone is putting up a front, putting up their walls, and staying in their own lane. I've shared this in the past, but there's a difference between vulnerability and transparency. Transparency is disclosure without invitation. You can disclose and share, but there's no invitation for you that I share with to challenge me, to ask me questions. That's why pastors love this. <laughs> it's transparency. You guys know a lot about me. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be transparent. You guys use the word vulnerable. But it's one way. It's, it, when you guys ask me some questions, sometimes I'm like, oh man, why you gotta ask me about my dad? Or why you gotta ask me about this or that? I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be vulnerable here. But vulnerability is disclosure with invitation. It's an invitation to be able to challenge me. When I share about my life that you're actually gonna follow up and I'm gonna have to answer and be honest. You see, this was a church marked by affection, of a community that was, that was marked by vulnerability and love and care and tenderness for each other. I always say, when the worst is known about you, what? Love is still offered. Well, that's not, that can't only be true of God to us. It needs to be true of one another. That when the worst is known about me, love will always be offered. Because this will be a place where we will care for one another, love one another, keep one another accountable. Despite of our flaws and our mess. Lastly, as we finish here, the last thing we see that's kind of littered throughout all this entire farewell that Paul gives to the Ephesians is commitment. Commitment. In verse 18, Paul says this, you know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day, serving in the Lord with tears and with trials. Verse 23, he talks about how imprisonment and afflictions await me. In verse 24, he says, I don't count my life of any value or precious as long as I finish my course and ministry that God has called me to. Verse 31: Three years I did not stop day or night to admonish everyone with tears. You talk about a brother who was committed to the church and a church that was committed to Paul. Why? Well, it's verse 28. Our commitment to the church it is because of Christ's commitment to the church. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Christ died for this church. He shed his own blood so that this church could exist. Not human blood god's blood the blood of god himself was shed so that a church might be birthed and when we understand that jesus did this for us then if you say you love jesus you will love the things he loves your heart will break for the things that break his You will work for the beauty of this church so that it will flourish and grow as we proclaim the truths, as we are generous, as we care and protect one another, as we live a life of vulnerability and affection for each other. We do this in commitment to one another because Christ has done it for us. He suffered and died so that the churches in the world might grow and flourish and proclaim who he is. And that's why we can commit to one another. Jake Meter, he's an author. And as he reflected on the decline of the church, and you've probably heard about since the pandemic, many have not come back. But there was an interesting study by the University of Chicago and what they did was they actually pinged phones in the United States. And they recognized the number of people going to church regularly was a lot less than what people self-reported. So when they look on a Sunday morning like today and they took the pings of every phone in America, only 3% were in churches on Sunday morning. 3%. And Jake Meter began to reflect on this. And this is what he reflected on. And he began to say that American life in the 21st century was that everyone is busy. And this description, I think, reflects us. He says, job hours are long and unpredictable. Finances are precarious. The kids have soccer. The baby is not sleeping through the night. The grandparents need more help around the house. And a friend is visiting. I'm tired. Quote, Contemporary American simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. So we're lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. Forever in the red on time and energy, we don't spare any of our resources for the church. If that's true, a church's first impulse might be to make membership easier, to demand less of over-busy members so they'll still show up. But maybe the problem isn't that churches are asking too much of their members, but but that they aren't asking nearly enough. Now, Meter's vision of asking more, it's important to note it's not about doing more. It's actually relational. It's about being more for each other. He argues that the church should actually become a thicker community marked by sincere love a stronger safety net in the harsh American economy, economy, and a constant reminder that humans are more than the many entries in our calendars. What he argues is that routine participation in communal Christian life is the primary location of our worship and discipleship. It shapes our personalities, our social lives, our attention, and our desires. And if you don't think church about church this way that it's merely an optional gathering that can be regularly skipped in favor of nice weather or a ball game on tv then when your church asks for more your answer will likely be a tired nah if you bother to reply at all i think this last point is where the rubber meets the road do we truly believe the church is the beautiful bride of Christ? That he has chosen to bring about the flourishing of our cities and our neighborhoods and our families to be a blessing to those around us, to the hand to be the hands and feet of Christ? Do we believe in the church's importance? As we have learned from Paul's farewell speech to the church of Ephesus. May this be a reality for our church as well. To live out the truths of the gospel. To be a place where we protect and care for one another. To be generous and to show affection and vulnerability. And to be committed to one another and to Christ's beautiful bride. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your beautiful bride that you purchased with your own blood one that took sacrifice and suffering and sorrow and grief where you were forsaken and condemned and cursed upon a tree lord i pray that you would begin to work in our own hearts to reveal where lord we might be inadequate but also to encourage us because you are not done with us yet lord you are making us beautiful as the body of christ And so to that end, Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us as we come to the table so we might be nourished and fed to continue to practice these things, to be able to be a people who are sacrificial and generous, to care for one another, to be vulnerable, to be committed to one another so that, Lord, you might be glorified through our living and our being. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.